a lot of you know a lot of advice that comes from friends and family i find i said this to a few clients they're like yes that happens all the time but they go to a friend hey i'm really depressed well, what do you have to be depressed about, man? Look, you got a beautiful family, you got a great job, your life's good. I hate. <laughs> I I nothing makes my skin crawl more than when people say that. Because your it depression makes it worse. is not relative to other people's depression. In the same way that eating your peas here in America does not save a starving kid in Africa. <laughs> Okay, it doesn't, they're unrelated. I don't care if your neighbor's house burned down and she has it worse than you. That doesn't make your depression better. Right. Dear Sigmund. Oh, we got to start. Yeah, yeah. I'm Dr. J.P. Shand, and I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, and uh, I treat people on the inpatient hospital setting. Um, And I guess that's it. You wrangle a bunch of administrative issues as well, right? Yes, we were just talking about that. Yeah, (laughs) Yes, yes. I'm medical director as well, so that comes with its own administrative roles. Okay. And Mm -hmm. I'm Shannon Miller, the owner of Apricity Behavior Health and a therapist, so... I do my own admin stuff as well as see clients all day, almost every day. Yeah. And here we are. This is Dear Sigmund yeah. on, at DearSigmund.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we answer questions that you write into us, and we just do our best to answer them as truthfully and honestly as possible. But um, really, mm-hmm. for entertainment purposes and really just trying to get knowledge out there uh, in the field of psychiatry, is it is very hard uh, to get some of this knowledge. You know, a lot of waiting yeah. lists. There's a lot of waiting lists. The There's a lot of money. You're yeah, billing rate. Internet's... Let's just talk about how much you bill at. <laughs> That's probably, yeah. <laughs> but uh, here it is for free. All you got to do is send an email or even better, a voicemail. Yes. I want to hear somebody's voice other than ours. We don't have an app, right? It's a it's the website you go to, and then you push the button that says, ask a question, and you just hold yeah. the button down. I don't even think you, I think you just have to push it once. Okay. I think your clicking finger doesn't even have to stress. Good. Yeah. Good. I mean, no I'd, stress. Stress-free zone. Stress-free. We don't have to know who you are. We're not even interested in figuring out who you are. We just want to hear what's going on. As much backstory as you can give us would be amazing because um, that's what gives the story context and gives us information to work with. Yes. And then we will wax poetic about your question. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I did try to listen to one of these podcasts. It did sound like we. I just rambled forever. I did. Just rambled on forever. I'm about to do it now. But so before I do that, let's ask our question. Dear Sigmund, could you discuss the destructive link between depression and alcohol, which so often leads to alcoholism, not only from the perspective of the sufferer, but also those close by who are affected? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we can start talking about that. It is a very deep, there's probably a lot of reasons that alcohol which is a depressant mm-hmm. uh and pretty much something that will help you avoid current thought process or thought topics you know you get drunk and you don't have to think about it anymore you kind of numb yourself uh is associated with a lot of mental health stuff but first thing that comes to mind when i hear that is i associate it more with anxiety more people well then let me just say many people turn to alcohol when they have high anxiety. People who are constantly thinking, constantly repeating things in their heads, really struggling with um, getting thoughts 
to go away, enjoy the effect of alcohol for its numbing properties. That kind of like, I'm just going to quiet everything Because your down. brain doesn't ruminate when you're drunk. Yeah. Yeah. It just it, slows it all down, which is the point of a depressant. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. And they, so one of the main treatments for anxiety is benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines, Xanax, Ativan, uh, Clonopin, work through the exact, well, a Gift very similar a very similar mechanism <laughs> that alcohol works through. And that is why, actually here's another little key point, the only two withdrawals that mm-hmm. are deadly, so people Alcohol's all think one of them, alcohol and benzodiazepines. Withdrawal from those two are the only things that are deadly. Okay, but that doesn't tell me why they're deadly. Well, so it's... it's cliff because, notes, cliff notes, cliff notes. Yeah, okay. It's because, like we said, this substance slows everything down, so it slows all the neurons down. If you cold turkey stop it, all of those neurons in your brain start getting super excited because they're used to being slowed down. So boom, they all fire at once and you get into a seizure state called status epilepticus that you can't get out of. And, uh, and it's a seizure that kills you. Yeah. I learned something new today. Steve. I was this year's old when I learned that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's a lot of different perspectives we can take to answer this question. Well, I agree with absolutely everything you said, and I completely agree that anxiety is often at the root of what leads people to drink. I think anxiety can also be at the root of what is depression mm-hmm. as well. Like all roads lead back to anxiety in many, <laughs> many, many, many times. But I see alcoholism as what we would call firefighter response, which is the I don't give a shit what the long term consequences are. I need whatever is wrong right now to stop. And alcohol does that beautifully, right? Mm. In like 10, 15 minutes of doing a shot, if you're a lightweight like me, um, it kind of stops, right? It doesn't care about the long-term consequences, the hangover tomorrow, the losing your job, the destruction that it causes outside of that. It serves the immediate purpose of making whatever the irritant is go away, okay? And so people do that as a form of self-medicating. Here's where it gets even more interesting is that if we look at addiction studies, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Mm. And there's this famous guy named Bruce Alexander who did this big fancy study and it's been, I think replicated several times over, but he called it Rat Park. And basically they laced um, water. They had plain water and they had heroin water and I know heroin and alcohol are two totally different things but we're looking at addictive properties here and what we choose do these little rat buddies choose to be with each other or are they going to choose the heroin rats that are left in total isolation heroin every single time no no second thoughts about it and constant from what I remember they did it until they died they would totally ignore the food they would ignore yes, pretty much they, everything above all, all care however throw a little rat party on the other side of this experiment and you say okay do you want plain water or do you want the opioid laced water and apparently rat park was this reference that it was like this perfect utopia for a rat there was cheese and there were spinny wheels and there was other rats and rat you could hang out. mrs frisbee was there all loose and available <laughs> <laughs> nice. yes Especially and the rest that. of nim um so 
the rats, when they are with other people and they have social connection, do not choose the opioid. They will choose water every single time. They don't want the opioid. Yeah, they and don't spend the majority of their time right? with social engagement. Right, and so this whole idea of intervention and tough love and all that stuff, um, I know it's still a thing, but for me personally, I'm kind of edging more towards, eh, are we doing more harm than good with that? Um, do we need to look at things more in the way that Portugal looks at it? Oh, oh, I did hear about this Portugal. Legalize they, everything right. from crack to pot to alcohol to everything. And make safe spaces for Make them. safe spaces for it and rehabilitation with lots of offers rather than cutting people off. Yeah. So my understanding in that Portugal uh, study, from at least what I know of it, and I'm sure it's very complex, but the idea was that they stopped putting the resources into the uh, penal system and being punitive to these individuals and spending all this exorbitant money about housing individuals and putting you know more right. cells and cell blocks and then feeding them and then all this therapy in, the, in these places um, and put it into paying. Now, somebody should, one of our listeners should look this up. Uh, listener. Paying. Or one listener. Our listener should look this up. Can you Google fact check us? <laughs> um, so they um, put, I think, a certain amount of money towards employers in Portugal and said, we will pay for half of this person's salary. Mm -hmm. So you pay half their salary. The government and state will pay half their salary. You give them the job. If you, require, if you hire recovering addicts. Yes. 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 Which sounds it's amazing. It's worked. It's That's worked awesome. brilliantly. That's great. Um, I'm going to look up the, yeah, some mm -hmm. of those results. Um, to circle back, though, to what the listener is asking, the destructive link between mm. depression and alcohol, um, I think the destruction is that alcohol is being used to minimize or even wipe out depressive symptoms. And any feeling. What about it, just, just yeah, feelings? Yeah, any feeling. And it works very short term, but it has catastrophic fallout afterwards. Um, and I think that those close to them are part of that catastrophe that mm -hmm. comes. It destroys relationships. It destroys everything. Yeah. You know, if it gets to that point. There's a great resource, uh, <clears throat> resource for individuals who are family members of alcoholics. So everyone knows Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. There is a, another group called Al-Anon, A-L-A-N-O-N. I think it's alanon.org. Uh, but that is a resource for family members and people who are loved ones of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Uh, support groups and resources it is really amazing you know people who are these family members and find themselves stuck in uh, positions of enabling or uh, you know th that it's causing such detriment in their own lives can really find a lot of resources in Al-Anon because codependency goes hand in hand with addiction am I right oh yeah yeah that's what I thought well, yeah Lots of destructive behaviors go along with addiction. Okay. And, 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 you know, this is a really interesting question because <clears throat> there's also the question of the chicken and the egg. You know, did the depression come first and then the alcoholism? Was it anxiety and then depression and then, mm -hmm. or, and then alcoholism and then depression came thereafter because you're losing everything? So these things can get very muddled. Very muddled. It's hard to tease them apart. The number one thing you can do to diagnose and treat is you got to get rid of the substance. So alcohol. you are a believer not in harm reduction, which just means eh, I'll use a little bit in more total abstinence. I like 
at least during a diagnostic period, I ask my patients to abstain from mind-altering substances uh, in terms of, you know, non-pharmaceutical, not, you know, things that I don't know the steady state concentration of and exactly, you know, what it should be doing in your body. Um, so I, you know, people come in all the time and they're like, hey, I smoke, you know, a couple bowls a day and I'm still depressed and I'm anxious. So I think I smoke the bowls because I'm anxious. And but, well, I, I just ask them, hey, can you abstain for, let's say, a month, two months and really document and tell me how you're feeling during that period? Sometimes there's withdrawal during those periods, so that kind of makes the water a little more murky. But generally speaking, after several weeks, a few months, those the byproducts of those substances should be out of your body, and you can get a clearer picture of what your mind is doing at baseline. We call it baseline without the interference of these other things. But an addict can't abstain. Oh, yeah, no. This is like, a, generally speaking, it's a a request that I ask at the highest level, knowing that there is going to be likely a certain amount of use there under that is uncontrollable. Okay. Now, you know, this gets into the question of how do I treat, you know, addict? That's their primary. Most people are coming to me as a psychiatrist for their mood disorders, okay. psychotic okay. disorders. You know, and these these substances they're using on the side are is just kind of making the picture really cloudy for me. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right, Jesse, what's our, our next question? <laughs> the next question is an audio question. Yes, we nice. get to hear someone's voice. Yes. Other than our own. Ad nauseum. How do I know when I should seek uh, professional therapy uh, versus talking to a friend or picking up a self-help book? Thanks. Uh, you want to start this one? This I would say now. Because they're because they're listening to a podcast well, about just, mental health. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say anytime's a good time, right? Friends aren't going to give you unbiased answers. Friends always have sort of their agenda. They haven't been trained how we are to sort of filter out our own personal leanings, and we're not great at it. We're not perfect at it by any stretch, but we can recognize when we're doing it more than a friend. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it's always acceptable to check in with a therapist. There doesn't have to be like a particular incident, you know, bounce what your friends are saying off of a therapist just to sort of check in. Mm -hmm. That's my answer. That is good. Yeah. I like that answer. And I, you know, I don't know too much more to add, but like you said, your friends and your family have an agenda for you. They want you to be a certain person. When you're hanging out with your friend, your friend wants you to be a cool, fun guy to hang out with or a person to be there and, mm -hmm. you know, also entertain them. So it kind of gets to the, to the point that there is a symbiotic relationship there, whereas one with a therapist is very selfish. This is about me. It's my time, and I'm going to get an unbiased third-party professional opinion on exactly what I'm thinking, feeling, doing. A lot of, you know, a lot of advice that comes from friends and family, I find, I said this to a few clients, they're like, yes, that happens all the time, but they go to a friend, hey, I'm really depressed. Well, what do you have to be depressed about? Man, look, you got a beautiful family, you got a great job, your life's good. I hate, <laughs> I, I, nothing makes my skin crawl more than when people say that. Because Your it depression makes it worse. is not relative to other people's depression in the same way that eating your peas here in America does not save a starving kid in Africa. <laughs> Okay, it doesn't, it, they're yeah. unrelated. I don't uh -huh. care if your neighbor's house burned down and she has it worse than you. That doesn't make your depression better. Right. 
And, and the only person to walk away from that interaction feeling good about themselves is the person telling you that. Is yeah. the person who's yeah, rah, rah, like, rah, oh, rah, you know what? I really helped him. I helped him see <laughs> the family that loves really him. Really gave him some I, perspective. Yeah, you know, to I'm a about. good person. You know, he'll probably start a gratitude journal when he gets home tonight. <laughs> Dedicate it to me. Right. That's exactly. And the person who was depressed, like, oh God, like you're right. I have nothing to be depressed about. I'm still depressed, and now they feel worse. And now I'm ashamed of yeah. my depression. I'm ashamed of my natural who state of being. So I should probably just shut up about this. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we try to put a lid on our feelings and deny them, they own our asses. Yeah. Right? Just gets worse. Feelings are like little beings that live inside of us that need to be managed. What happens when you ignore the kid throwing the temper tantrum? Well, he gets louder. Your yeah. feeling's going to do the same thing. If you ignore it, suppress it, pretend it doesn't exist, it's going to get louder until you acknowledge it. Yeah. I do use something called planned ignoring sometimes. Me too. Where, right, yeah. So planned ignoring can be a coping strategy or behavioral modification. But it only modification. works if you keep your promise yeah. of saying, I will acknowledge you at this particular time. I like to use time as well. Like yes. when I'm done at work on the car ride home, it's all yours. Have at me shame. Have at me whatever emotion. Yeah. But you don't get to interrupt my work day. Yep. You think planned ignoring, now I'm thinking about it, is uh, also equivalent to distraction, kind of like using coping skills of distraction. I think coping skill of di distraction would be a technique for planned ignoring. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. Now we're going to start getting really jargony, and people are going to be like, what are they talking about? I know. The, <laughs> person, right. the person that's listening is going to be like, you lost me. <laughs> <laughs> totally lost me. No, I mean, my clients have heard me say this. Like, it only works. You can only negotiate with your feelings if you keep your word. If you say, look, after dinner tonight, you get that hour between eating and going to bed where we can think about this thing all we want. If you do not allow yourself to do that, you break your promise. That feeling is going to be like, well, screw you. You didn't keep your word. So 8.30 tomorrow morning on the way to work, I own you, and I'm going to own you the whole way up till lunch. Good luck getting anything done. You have to keep your word to your feeling. And again, we're personifying the feeling, treating as if it's like a little person that lives inside of you that needs to be managed. Got to keep your word. Yeah, consistency. Absolutely. Hmm. Next question. Well, speaking of hearing voices, dear Sigmund, hello, someone with multiple personality disorder here. What do you think the personalities are? Like for someone who has them, do you think they are human or some other type of entity? Oh, neither. So, yeah. Neither. Well, I mean, yes, you're neither. human. You're human. And most days. Yeah. <laughs> most days. <laughs> so, so the listener, yes, you are human and you probably have this coping strategy within you that has really embodied different personas so that one can defend against another's experience. Generally speaking, my understanding of multiple personalities is serious and significant traumas, traumatic events that require such isolation of affect in terms of the idea that you have to remove Yourself. You had to leave your body in that moment of the trauma happening that you basically sectioned off your personality. Yes. Yeah. And now and now it's hard to say why some ideas of individuals have a multitude of them and some are conscious of each other, you know, these different personalities. Yes. Yeah, There's a bunch sort of, of terminology in there. Um I personally I look at it not as a 
pathology of an organic brain matter disease. You know, I don't believe that there's a segmented portion of your brain where one section is one person, another section is another. You know, it, it, the brain does not function like that, nor could I get on board with there are alternative entities or extra embodied, you know, outside of your body uh, creating, you know, these different experiences within you. And nor do I think that there are different people living inside of you. I think this is how amazing your brain is. Yes. That your brain went into such a protective state that whatever was occurring was so traumatic that in order to protect you, the brain totally disassociated from the event that was happening. Mm -hmm. And out of that came, you basically kind of learned to stay in that state. And what happened was then we didn't reintegrate. You didn't come back into your body. Instead, a separate thing was formed. Mm -hmm. And I'm, this wouldn't be something that I would treat, you know, online in my practice. So I'm not that well versed yeah. in it. Well, not a lot of people, there's a lot of controversy around this. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, and okay, so we used to call it multiple personality, but mm -hmm. now we also call it um, disassociated identity, identity disorder. disorder. Yep. DID. I keep thinking DID, DID and I can't come up with the words. Some docs don't think it's real. Or what's the. Again, I don't deal with it much, so I don't really know that much. Real is – it's very hard to say the word real, right, because this person or whoever has these experiences are experiencing them realistically. The question is what is the basis for it or what is the cause for it, and is it better captured in another disorder? So, so we're not actually accusing somebody of faking it. Oh, no. Heck no. Yeah, absolutely Okay, not. so right. when a doctor says, I don't think it's real, that doesn't necessarily mean we're saying like, hey, faker – Right. Oh, that's a really great clarification. Okay. You're right. So, and, and I think that, yeah, there's a lot of people that have these disorders that see a lot of controversy around these disorders. My experience and the majority of it is that these are ideas that some clinicians or practitioners will have that say, hey, this probably isn't an entity to itself, but rather this is probably better captured in another diagnosis. Like we could say borderline personality disorder, which has derealization, depersonalization as one of its symptoms. And maybe if somebody is only experiencing one of the symptoms, you know, the others either are there, nobody's caught it, or uh, is this an entity all to itself where they just have an isolated experience, one of these traits of a larger disorder? Um, now, this is a living... So why is this important? Like, why does it matter if we give it, like, its own diagnoses or yeah, just, like, it, part of another? It isn't. It, okay. it isn't. Okay. It isn't. Truly. Uh, it's so it's this all, is all how academic. we treat it clinically. That part is academic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But it is a real phenomenon. Like, when we see people happening, and I'm drawing a blank right now, but there's... The movie? Uh, well, it's Sybil is the movie. Oh. No, there's a woman more currently lives in Los Angeles, has a YouTube channel that was interviewed by a big mental health really? conglomerate. Oh, I don't know this one. Um, I'll look it up. Um, but you can watch. If and our listener a, can Google that for us, too. Yeah, but I don't know what they would Google beyond YouTube, DID. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyhow, you can literally watch her affect change. And she would have to be, like, Academy Award winning. Yeah. And I've seen a few. I saw one. Oh, you have? Yeah, I was a prison psychiatrist for a little bit. And uh, there was one episode where it was the most convincing depersonalization or, or, or DID individual. Woman or man? It was a woman. And she, her affect, her body, her mannerisms, her body language, mm -hmm. mannerisms changed profoundly. 
um, to the point where I th it, it felt like I was talking to an entirely different person. Did you talk to her like it was a different person? Yes. Did you talk to her like yes. it was a different person? Yeah. I, let, I really let the individual lead me, you know. Right. And if it's very clear that they're experiencing this conversation with a different person, I'm I'm so real to you dominant as a submissive relationship between you and the patient. Respect <laughs> <laughs> your muzzling comment. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, uh, you have to meet the individual where they are too, and if yes. and if they are coming to me as though they're just meeting me for the first time, although I've been speaking with them for 15 minutes, I'll I'll meet you right there. I will start right back from the beginning and we'll start over again. Fine. Because I, you know, I, well, I don't know. I have a lot of patience and empathy. That's patience with a C? Yes. C. Yes. Okay. Although I've got a lot of both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So do we think they are human or some other type of entity? They are human in that they are all you. It's just an exquisite coping mechanism that was born out of profound trauma. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next question. All right. Well, I think that actually brings this episode to a close. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I think we're going to, what did we say? We're going to try to get these to 30 minutes apiece. How many minutes was that one? It's about 30. It was about 30 minutes. All right. We're good. One of the listeners, listener, listener wrote in and thought that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a, a more timely episode length. Keeping it to 30 minutes is good. Yeah. Yeah. We All listen. Right. We hear you. So if you have a question, um, feel free to check us out at DearSignan.com. Um, drop us an email. Even better yet, leave us a voice message. We want to hear your voice, and we are happy to answer any question that you throw at us. Yes. And again, anything that you hear here is solely for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you really have a problem, please do seek professional help. But we do know what we're talking about. <laughs> Barely. Okay. Well, on a good day. <laughs> so does that mean then, when that person switched personalities in front of you, that yeah. they were in a trauma, like somehow they were feeling that trauma then again and that they needed to switch at that moment? Not that trauma again, but a emotional experience that likely triggered a, a change. So Generally it, speaking, they say that like something triggers the changes in personality. If you couldn't sit there, there are a few cases where individuals are saying, I can control when this person comes out and that person comes out. That is even less convincing to me that that's a real Well, I mean, mechanism. as in, so, okay, let's say someone wants experienced something horrible, their family murdered, whatever like that. They developed, and that was the initial trauma. So then when they're talking to you later on, did you say something that scared them into like then where this this other personality came out again then? Like, is that why it keeps coming back up? Because it's scared? It's a good question. Yes, I would say they are defense mechanisms. Yes. Okay. So right. I would say yes. And I, I couldn't say whether it was because they're scared or maybe they're feeling vulnerable or maybe they're feeling frisky or maybe and they're feeling, you know and funny. something comes out that triggers that alternate i call them alternates to be more at the front and the other ones kind of fade to the back okay but it, it speaks you know i was gonna say there's nothing more human than this fuck i should have said it because there's really nothing more human than the idea that we can have all of these people inside of us at once you know we can have these different personalities and these people that kind of come and go and and we can change our behavior to our environment to meet our needs so when the person asks you know is, is this human are these other humans well no but <laughs> this is a really 
human experience. Yeah, amazing demonstration of the human experience. Well, but also my therapeutic approach is we all are a little bit of multiplicity of personality, right? I can change from one person to the next. I can be, you know, the hard ass. That's sociopathic, though. Totally. Okay. Totally. Okay. Right. You can be a hard ass at work and come home and love all over your kids. Totally. Right? You can be one person with your parents and a different person with your own children. Yes. Well, you were just describing that like, oh, I have anxiety. I'm not going to de- address that anxiety until later on at night or something like that. Well, is that the same little, thing? Nope. That's oh. very different. That's a conscious. That, that is like probably the, the opposite end of the spectrum because that is really like I'm going to be super conscientious of exactly who I am at what moment. And this one is like I'm just going to take over willy nilly mm. and you got no control over this. Right. That's right. Well, but – Okay, so like we all go home for family dinner at Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Why does it suck? Because we all go back into those roles that we had when we were kids. You know, don't put your elbows on the table, okay, even though you're 40 years old, you know, or whatever it may be. You aren't who sitting at that dining room table at Thanksgiving aren't the same person who you are leading the boardroom meeting the next morning, mm-hmm. right? That's a little bit of multiplicity there, too. Multiplicity in that you've got a lot of different facets to your personality. And I think my perspective is DID is that to the extreme, right? So, like... And less control. And less... Absolutely. Less control over... Although one can argue, do we really control whether or not we act like our younger selves when we get home? No. If we could, we wouldn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um. So anyhow, I think multiplicity of personality is a very humanistic trait. Yeah. 